Before you dive into this particular episode, I think a few words might orient you to where I'm headed and remind you of where I've been. I spent time in prison, sure, but I also ran the streets for years before that. And I know well the fear that pops into our hearts when those blue and red start flashing. It's not just fear of arrest. It's fear of a power differential that can lead to some serious lifelong consequences, or even death. As just one example, when I was arrested for identity theft, they found dozens of credit cards and checkbooks in my pockets, but no drugs. It was obvious I'd been using, my arms were covered in track marks, and we were both dope sick already. But without the drugs or some paraphernalia, the crime might not have been looked at as bad as it otherwise would be by the courts. So I shouldn't have been surprised when they went to put me in the back of the cop car and there was a bag of dope sitting on the seat. I'm lucky I pointed it out before I got anywhere near the door and that my hands were already cuffed behind my back. Otherwise it would have been my bag of dope and they would have had their drug charge. That's what I mean by power differential. Things can go bad in a hurry. Now of course, I'm not running the streets anymore. And I'm usually read by the police nowadays as a nice middle-aged white guy who doesn't pose a threat. So as I've grown older, or slowed down, or both, my perspective has changed. I'm not pro-cop, and I'm not anti-cop. I'm more interested in how we can improve policing than I am in arguing about whether or not we should abolish it, since it's obviously not going anywhere. Two quick points. Number one, I don't think I'm capable of fixing our cultural issues with the police. I am in a somewhat unique position in that I've been on both sides of this, running from the police back in the day, and now having friends and family members who are police. Hi, Zach. But this isn't an episode where I'll attempt to explain how to fix the world. I just think these conversations have to start somewhere, and they have to appeal to people across the political spectrum if we ever really want to see updates and improvements in the system. That means challenging one another and ourselves. So if you're challenged in this episode, you're welcome. Number two, if we don't learn to speak in love and to put ourselves in others' shoes, we'll stay divided forever. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you'll probably hear something today that you disagree with. But try to not tune out everything I say just because you don't agree with one thing. We probably agree about much more than we disagree about. I understand these issues are complicated and often personal, and that for many, we're literally talking about life and death, so I take this topic very seriously. I think that's enough disclaimer for now. Enjoy the show. Welcome! This is the Dr. Junkie Show, and I'm Ben Boyce, convicted criminal, drug user, ex-prisoner in the largest walled prison on earth, and dissident of the war on drugs. And after a couple of odd emails asking me why I hate the police, I thought I'd use an episode to explain how I really feel about the police. And it's probably not how you think. Or maybe it is. I guess if you've been listening to this podcast, you know it's not as simple as a yes or a no. And while I'm at it, I may as well go all the way and talk about how I feel about the United States. So hold on, this could get wild. I teach a class at a local college here in Denver, I've actually taught it at two different colleges here now, called Communication, Prison, and Social Justice. And that class is largely about prison, 
the ultimate tool of disciplinary power in most contemporary societies. But it's about a lot more than that. As Fyodor Dostoevsky, the author of Crime and Punishment, said, the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. The social justice connection probably isn't that difficult to spot. We send people to prison because, culturally, we've deemed their behavior so unacceptable that it warrants locking them up. But we don't have to look very far back in our history to notice a lot of punishment handed out for crimes that we no longer consider crimes. We used to lock people up for being gay, for not being Christian, or for suffering from mental illness. Prison used to mean confinement in a silent closet, where we weren't allowed to read anything except the Bible, and we weren't allowed to talk. At all. We look back on those times now, and sigh. <sighs> How could they have been so ignorant as to not realize that the people that came after them would look poorly on them for doing that? But somehow, at the same time, we aren't able to recognize the fact that we'll almost certainly be looked at the same way by generations of the future for punishments that we're handing out right now. Chronic wokeness is a permanent feature of the United States. We love to feel like we're the wokest, most tech-savvy, most sexually liberated generation ever. And we just keep feeling like that, generation after generation, even though it's obviously an illusion. Let's start with the country. The United States is the only country on Earth where my condition would have been handled like it was. Now, it turns out that's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing compared to, say, President Duterte in the Philippines, who's been killing drug users using violent cops he calls death squads. And it isn't even a secret. Duterte's cruel attitude about drug users is a big reason why many people voted for him. Even though he's gone so far as to encourage people to kill drug users they don't know because it would be too difficult for their families to do it. If the criminals there are killed by the thousands, that's not my problem. You destroy my country, I'll kill you. And it's a legitimate uh, thing. That is a very correct statement. Brazil is now on a similar mission. And of course, they're seeing a massive uptick in overdose. Because that's what happens when you respond to someone's pain with cruelty. That's probably the real reason for both campaigns. To kill or traumatize so many drug users and their families that the war on drugs can carry on forever. Employing soldiers who think they're good guys dedicated to inflicting this sort of pain and sorrow which ensures the drug war will continue. Forever. Duterte's term recently ended. But his legacy is going to be carried on by his daughter who was elected vice president on a ticket headed by Ferdinand Marco Jr., a man whose parents enforced martial law for more than a decade in the Philippines before being ousted by a revolution. Marco's been far from apologetic or transparent about what happened back then, even though tens of millions of dollars are still missing, stolen by his parents decades ago. So it looks like the Philippines will continue to be one of the few countries that are actually handling their drug issues worse than the United States. I wasn't shot down in the streets or hunted down by police who were determined to murder me, like might have happened in Brazil or the Philippines, so that's good. But I also wasn't treated for a condition which the courts pretend to view as a disease, addiction. Instead, I was locked up and allowed to struggle through unmedicated withdrawal from heroin and fentanyl. 
and I suffered through a mostly sleepless, sweat-filled three-month period that's amongst the hardest days I've ever experienced. And during it all, I was chuckled at by both medical professionals in the jail and other incarcerated people. Check out the dope-sick fool in cell four. Actually, there were three of us in there for the first week, when the worst of the puking, shitting, and sweating happens. I guess they thought it would be efficient to just lock us all up together. In the United States, capitalism is esteemed as an all-purpose solution to nearly everything. Yet we refuse to include drugs in that equation. So a product that costs around a buck a gram to produce is instead sold for hundreds of dollars per gram on the streets, fueling crime on both sides of the dose, from dope users like me who committed petty crimes to get my next fix, to dealers who are robbed or who rob others and have to use violence to police their own property since they can't call the police. So the United States is a place where something is glamorized and romanticized as drugs. Check out my previous episode if you don't know what I mean. Where they can also be a limitless source of stigma and social exclusion at the same time. It's a country that spent $30,000 plus per year to lock me up without offering any services that might have reduced my chances of coming back once I was released. But then, it might be the only country on earth where I can do what I do now. Teach college classes inside a prison a lot of the time, write books, host this podcast, and all of the other projects I have my finger in. And that's the reason I have so much faith that we can, whenever we finally decide to do it, fix this thing and minimize the harm to those who stand to lose their livelihoods when the war on drugs ends. Not just drug dealers, but rehab workers, correctional officers, probation officers, judges, prosecutors, drug crime divisions, and of course, regular old street cops who won't have anyone to arrest once the petty theft and violent crime rates go way down, which has happened in every other country where drugs were either decriminalized or outright legalized. So that's right, I don't hate the United States. I actually think it's the only country on earth where someone like me could do something like I do. But it's also the only country on earth that would have put me through that trauma and torture in the first place. Which brings me to the police. The United States incarcerates almost 25% of Earth's prisoners. A full 2% of our citizens are currently under correctional supervision of some sort. We spend more tax dollars on incarceration than we do on education. In many states spend tens of thousands of dollars more per prisoner than per student. We're getting exactly what we're paying for. Right now, for the first time in my life, violent crime is rising across the country. Now that makes sense if you study criminology. We're in the midst of a cultural update, the social media tech era. And like all cultural updates, it's come with anxieties and frustrations. And those anxieties spill over when given the opportunity. Say, when someone cuts you off on the way home for work, or says something shitty to you on social media. COVID has everyone stressed out, pent up, and tired of the people in their home. It has us all tuning into our echo chambers of television, social media, and podcasts without the typical counterbalances of public life. And for much of the last decade, we've had a president who saw fit to not only lie about whatever popped into his mind, if it suited him, but to name-call, mock, and stigmatize others, behaviors that trickle down to the public. And meanwhile, our cultural habit of ignoring mindfulness and failing to notice what's happening in our own bodies 
It's catching up to us when those COVID-fueled anxieties spill over and we turn to whatever tools we have at our disposal for dealing with that stress. For men, that's often violence or destruction, or as Bell Hooks would have said, domination. All of this means that we're in a bit of an in-between phase right now, because as violent crimes rise, so do incarceration rates. But much of the current crime wave is clearly tied to our breakdowns related to COVID, which means the increase should be temporary, along with the anxieties which are fueling it. We have to fix our hearts. And to do that, we have to look at where our base programming is coming from. We have to start educating ourselves about what media is doing to us, and about our very human desire to embrace media in the most toxic of ways. And then we have to start rebuilding, from scratch, our beliefs, attitudes, and laws about drugs and those who use them, among other things. And we have to do it all using a foundation very different than the one we've been using. We have to undo the tough love and fuck you get out politics, and instead, start with love. But if we legalize drugs, the police will lose their jobs. And that massive firing will rapidly trickle down to all the other positions which require a constantly packed prison system to maintain their status quo. So we'll have to redesign with that in mind, carving out new positions which come with the same cultural respect as those that we're going to erase. So what do I really think about the police? Well, since there's so many police officers in this country, and since I certainly don't feel the same way about all of them, I think it's probably more productive to start with how I feel about the idea of the police. The police are fucking superheroes, or at least that's what they should be. I know, I know, our postmodern, camera-filled cultural landscape provides us with countless examples that appear to prove otherwise. But that's not what I'm talking about. The purpose of communities hiring police officers is to have superheroes patrolling the streets. Good guys with good hearts dedicated to showing up when the shit hits the fan. When someone tries to break into my house and steal my stuff at 2am, instead of having to deal with it myself, say, duke it out in the streets or shoot the bandit, I can call a well-paid superhero to come save the day. That's the real purpose of law enforcement, to enforce the law. Again, at least in theory. Whenever I say it that way, I notice people have a hard time arguing. If I talk about the cops who do awful things, or the cops who are straight up dirty, well, of course, most of us think, fuck them. But when it comes to superheroes who are really here to save the day, who really want to do good and help their community, those are the cops most of us actually want patrolling our streets. And that's where the real focus should be. I'm building a community where all cops are those cops. A community where the bad police officer behavior that we all see replayed over and over on our screens until we think it's how all cops behave, where that behavior hardly exists. A community that will look very much like the post-drug war world, where all of the crime caused by the illegality of drugs, what Tim Rose calls a structural risk environment danger to dealers, users, and the general public, where those are largely a thing of the past. Some researchers estimate up to a 50% reduction in crime rates following legalization. So we're going to have to rethink policing anyway. Why not use this opportunity to do so? Sure, people will always fight over dumb shit, and people will always commit crimes of necessity and crimes of desire. But the risk of violence or crime popping off is greatly reduced when we don't inundate society with overpriced chemicals more valuable by weight than gold 
then refused to allow police to regulate commerce or to allow legitimate corporations to sell them. These things will change the second drugs are no longer illegal. All illegal drug dealers will be out of business overnight. So here's how I see this. And hold on if you listen to this podcast normally, because you might be a bit shocked. I think police officers should get paid more than they do. Something that classifies them as wealthy per the area where they live. And I think their shift should be four to six hours with tons of rest and relaxation built into their year through perks like vacations and conventions. Before you tune out, just consider what such a market would look like. A third to a half of our current police officer positions are no longer available because once we end the war on drugs, we won't have as much crime to arrest people for. So we can pay more for those positions which do still exist, allowing for something like market competition. Ideally, the best cops would stick around, and those who have shifty records would find new careers. Of course, we'll have to do the work of regulating that market, so to speak, and making sure that good old boys clubs don't stick around while firing the good cops. But once again, I think that's something that we can do. I think we have to go further than that, even. Right now, the so-called blue wall of silence is a very real thing. Shortly after I graduated high school, I was arrested for embezzlement. I stole some TVs and a computer from a UPS delivery service I was working for. After I was arrested, when the detective at the state police department was interviewing me, I mouthed off. Actually, I mouthed off three or four times. In response to his question, I said, fuck you, pig. And after the fourth pig, he snatched me up, slammed me against the wall with my hands still cuffed behind my back, and threw me out of his office door, where I fell backwards and down a few stairs. Of course, at this point, all the other officers in the building came rushing up. And after realizing it was just the detective doing what he had probably done dozens of times before, they laughed it off, made sure he was okay, and then went back to their own business. That's the blue wall of silence. Had I tried to file a complaint, no one would have known what I was talking about. Case dismissed. The only way you smash a wall like that is with incentives. You have to pay people to hold themselves and their departments accountable. I'm not sure what this reward for snitching pay looks like, and I'm sure it wouldn't be called that, but I think that's one of the only ways to keep people with power honest. And like I said, the goal is always to make sure that only the best and most ethical superheroes need apply. That's what we want cops to be. And if they aren't that, I don't want to pay them anything or have them patrolling the streets at all. What I'm talking about is deliberately and strategically building trust with communities, a practice which police departments frequently pretend they value, yet seldom follow through and actually build that trust. And that's, once again, because they can't. Right now, the war on drugs allows police officers to pat down a suspect for weapons, a terry pat, and if they notice the shape in our pocket of, say, a crack pipe or a bag of dope, they can call that probable cause and search us further. They are, after all, professionals who can rely on their training to know what those currently illegal items feel like. If we're pulled over and our car allegedly smells like drugs, that's probable cause to search it. And worse, the way the war is currently designed, the police can not only arrest us, but they can take our cash and our property, and much of it will eventually end up in their department's budget as long as we have a small amount of drugs. That's an incentive that's got to go. You can't build trust with a community who you're allowed to rob at will. 
You can't build trust with the community when you frequently arrest them for having drugs or hassle them for being outside of their homes. Those aren't superhero moves. And since it's become so common to do just that, to take the cash and possessions of anyone who you can possibly charge with a drug dealing crime, which usually means they just had more than one dose in their pocket, police officers are now programmed to think that way, to see the public as potential forced donors, and to see themselves as the good guys when they steal our stuff. Once you've managed to get somebody doing those mental gymnastics, it's difficult to make them stop. Civil asset forfeiture has got to go if we ever expect police departments to truly build trust with the communities they serve. What about training? Right now, police officers are taught that they should never fire their weapon unless they intend to kill somebody. There's a good reason for that. If you allow them to shoot to injure, you lower the self-regulation that comes with knowing you only shoot when it's literally life or death. But that's also the reason that we see so many bullets flying when they start flying. It's why Philando Castile was shot five times, and why Brianna Taylor's apartment was riddled with bullets, even though her boyfriend only fired one warning shot. He wasn't trained to shoot to kill. They were. Even though there's a good reason for it, policies like that also have to go. In fact, I think most of the guns have to go. I get it, this is America, and everyone has a gun. But the fact that police have guns means that they have to act like anytime someone comes at them, they're going for a deadly weapon which they might use on nearby civilians. So they have to defend themselves with deadly force. That goes away as soon as there's no gun involved. Of course, we still need armed officers. But we don't need all of our officers armed. Remember, we're looking for superheroes here. If you don't think you can hit the beat without a deadly weapon, maybe you're more cut out for private security. Of course, all this brainstorming is nowhere near enough, because systemic overhaul is, well, systemic. But my point is, our problem isn't so much one of bad actors who seek out the role of cop, so much as what a police officer currently is. That superhero bit I keep repeating, that's not what cops are right now, despite what some of them might think. Right now, they're hyper-privileged enforcers of the law who operate, in large part, above it. They're the people who will take you to jail. But that should only be a small part of their job. The serve should always come before the protect. So as we move away from people who are trained to see a stranger and assume the worst about them, or who are trained to find a legal way to arrest those who might have a hit of dope in their pocket, we'll find that this new cut of police officer the true superhero who's in it to help their community members and, when necessary, to save the day, that they'll have an entirely different style, a different set of goals and strategies. So short answer, I don't dislike the police or this country. I simply expect more of both. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce.